Open your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Open your Bibles to the book of Malachi, chapter 3 this morning. Malachi 3. And we are going to begin our Christmas reflections. And as we do, I will remind you that John Owen, the great Puritan preacher from 350 years ago, said that there is one glory of the Lord Jesus Christ that deserves our minds and our hearts more than any other glory. And he said that was the glory whereby Jesus took on a body. The Son of God took on a body. And we begin to reflect on that this morning. And we'll do so for the next few Lord's Days together. Malachi 3, verse 6 is our text. The Bible reads, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. I want to begin by asking you, if God can change. I'm sure your answer will be no, he cannot, because that is a common teaching of Christianity. God cannot change. But the Bible does say that God repents. Jonah chapter 3, perhaps God will repent and spare the city. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God is described as changing based on whether or not the people repent. Can God change? It is a very important topic to be discussed. In fact, in Steve Charnock's 300-year-old book, The Existence and Attributes of God... He spends over 200 pages describing this one statement, God cannot change. What could you say for 200 pages? Well, I'll take maybe 30 of them this morning. Because I would like to ask you, can God change? And then I would like to direct your attention to Christmas where God changed. And then in my third point, I'd like to show you There's no contradiction. So I just gave you the three points that we're going to study this morning. First of all, God cannot change. And then secondly, Christmas is a holiday where God changed. And then finally, no, there's no contradiction. Let's begin with the doctrine that's right in our Bibles. Look look down at Malachi 3 verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. I change not. That is called the immutability of God. Mute. Change. Immute. Not change. Immutability, not changeability. God cannot change. Let me show you three ways that God cannot change. And these three ways parallel the Trinity. His perfection cannot change. You tell me which one of the members of the Trinity each of these parallels. Number one is perfections cannot change. He will not make good laws today and then make bad laws tomorrow. No, that cannot change. If he has made a law, it is always good. 1 Timothy chapter 1 tells us the law was not made for righteous men, but for unrighteous, sinners, etc. God made his law for bad people. And Romans chapter 7 says the law is holy and righteous and good. Three things describing God's law. God's law cannot change. He can't make good laws today and bad laws tomorrow. He cannot have pure motives today and evil motives tomorrow. He can't change from purity to filth. He cannot change his promise from one day to the next. He cannot promise something today and then disavow that promise tomorrow. And that, by the way, is the basis behind premillennialism, that Jesus will come back 
and then the earth will have peace rather than the reverse. Because God made certain promises to Israel and those promises cannot change. Jeremiah 31, when he's talking about the new covenant, which is one of the creeds we read in our book, and it is the passage, Jeremiah 31, that is quoted at greater length in the New Testament than any passage in the Bible. Just after Jeremiah 31 with the new covenant, the Bible says, if the sun can change, if the moon can change, if the stars can move out of their courses, then I will forget Israel, my people. If the stars can't move and the sun can't move, then his promises can't change either. Mark Dever, pastor in Washington, D.C., wrote a book which I only read the very end of. It's a long book, and I read just the very end of that book. It's called The Message of the Old Testament. And in the very end, he says, the whole message of the Old Testament is that God keeps his promises. Exactly right. He cannot change his promises. He won't make one today and change it tomorrow. He cannot make a decision and then later reflect on the errors of his judgment. But you can do that, can't you? Have you ever made a decision and then looked back and thought, whew, I wish I hadn't said that. You ever done that? Have you ever, have you ever made a decision and then wished, I wish I could just change this little part. I, I like this part of the decision, but I, I don't like that, little, that, that part of it. Have you ever sent a text message and then wished that you could delete it? God has never done that. He never wrote one verse of the Bible and then thought, ooh, that can't happen because he is immutable. He cannot change. He didn't write any words about slavery in the Old Testament that he now wishes were not written. He never wrote any words in the Old Testament about polygamy that now he wishes were not written. He never wrote one word about the fires of hell or women preachers or speaking in tongues that he now says... He cannot ever look back on his judgments and think they were not accurate. He will not reach a point where his love expires or exhausts itself. Have you ever reached the point where you got tired of loving? When you're young, you want to get married, and you assume that you will always love your wife. You should always love her. But your love can't stay at the same level of strength. One of the reasons it can't stay at the same level of strength is so that you would always know you're just a creature. That's one of the reasons we have to go to sleep every night. God made us to sleep so that we would always know we're so weak, we can't get through a three days without sleeping. And we can't make it through a life constantly loving one person but Jesus what does it say in John 13 verse 1 having loved his own which were in the world he loved them right up until the end what is that end there the end there is the completion of his promises it's the Greek word telos he loved them until the completion of everything he promised to do for them he never started loving them before the foundation of the world and then reached a point where he said oh Peter this one Sure, I got to take a break and then I'll come back and get at him again. No, he loved him from beginning to the end and not just one or two or 10 or 20, but he loved Revelation 7 verse 9, such a great number of people that you can't even count all the people that he loved and he never got tired of it. Even when you act the way you commonly do. When I speak the way I commonly speak, he will not change by reaching an end of his resources. He never checks his bank balance and wonders what he's going to do. He never pours out his wisdom and looks to see if there's more there. He will not change by learning, as the open theists say. The open theists say that God has to learn, but he's a very smart learner. And so he watches all the millions of people in the world and he sees the decisions they make and he computes them all and he can compute all the decisions they make so he can so accurately guess the future that it's practically as if he knew it. But the open theists say God cannot know the future because the future does not exist until it happens. So therefore God cannot know it. But he's very, very good at predicting the future. That contradicts the immutability of God. He cannot learn. 
God cannot change by growing, as the process theologians say. He can't grow from one thing to the next because that would assume that there was something imperfect about him, that children are not perfect yet. They need to grow until they learn how to use their fingers and hands and toes and eyes. God does not grow. God in his glory cannot and has not and will not change. Now you tell me which one of the persons of the Trinity that reflects best. Number two, his person does not change. And now, now we are boggled. Now we are boggled. I love the English language because there are so many words, more words in English than in any other language that I know of, although I haven't examined all 6,500 As far as I know, there are more words in English than any other language that has ever existed in the history of the world, which is one reason we all need to learn English, so we can read books and have so many words to express such wonderful ideas about God. But now we are at a a hard place, because I just said God cannot change in his person, but there are three persons in God. There is one God, but three persons, but he has one glorious, unified personality. How do I speak about this? God cannot change in his person's All men gathered together as a great army could not make the Father, Son, or Spirit change. Which is why Psalm 2 says, why did the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth gathered themselves together against who? Against the Lord Jehovah and against his anointed. How many are there? There's Jehovah and also the king he has chosen. Jehovah is the king. Yes, but he's chosen a king. There's a plurality in the Old Testament right there that every Jew has to come to grips with. And every Muslim who claims, oh, we believe in David as a prophet, then who is that, Mr. Muslim? Who is that Jehovah who has his anointed king? Well, all these nations gather together against that king and against Jehovah, and they all say, let us break his bands asunder and let us cast off his laws. We hate his laws. We despise his person. And what does he do who sits in the heavens? He laughs at them. This is not the laughter of humor. This is the laughter that sees something so small coming against something so great. Something changeable coming coming against something immutable. This is like the man who kicks at the rock, but not accidentally as you might, walking to the toilet at night. This is like someone who kicks against the rock who says, I despise the rock, and you see what I'll do to you, rock? I'll change you with my toe. And the rock looks down at that and says, What are you doing? Even as the man lays on the ground crying. And then as he gets over his tears, he gets up. And what in the world? He swings his other foot at the same rock. This God cannot change in any of his persons. All the combined actions of human history could no more move the Father, Son, and Spirit than a bird could change a mountain. Imagine some bird, if it could, but birds aren't crazy like we are. Some bird says, look at that, look at that, uh, um, Sutpensberg Mountain. Look at that hunglip. I think, I think I've got a project. I think my project is to move that mountain. What can a bird do in that regard? The anger that an atheist has toward God does not cut the bond between the Father and the Son. The demons of the world leading all of their religions against the Father, Son, and the Spirit cannot change them even in the least and cannot push the Son off of his privileged place. Have you ever tried to push some heavy rock or some high pillar? Have you ever come into a large building where there are pillars going up, holding up the roof, and maybe just as a joke or impersonating Samson or for some other reason, you put your hand on the rock? Imagine pushing with one hand, then two hands, then with a foot, then calling everyone to help you push that pillar. You could not move it. And that is what God says in the glory of his personality. You cannot move me. The spirit is not even slightly altered by all the lies that have been told about him in his name by the prosperity preachers and those who call themselves charismatic. When they say the spirit made me fall on the ground and shake or the spirit of God made me break the word of God by having women supposedly speak in gibberish, which they call tongues in public, though the Bible says we must in our understanding, be mature. That's not mature. And the Bible, in the same passage, by the way, and it says women may not do that in public. And it says they might not do it more than one at a time. So they're breaking all the laws that the Holy Spirit inspired, claiming that the Holy Spirit told them to do this. And he is not moved or altered in one iota. 
The Father, Son, and Spirit sit no more moved than by a star in the heavens when wind and storms happen here in Limpopo. They are entirely unmoved by you and your raging and by the whole world against them. The Father has always been above all. The Son has always reflected the glory of the Father. And the Spirit has always been that mutual, loving delight that bonds together the Father and the Son. There has never been a time when God in his essence has been able to or has ever changed. Number three. Are you following me? This is the first point. Sub point number three. Three ways God cannot change. What's the first way he cannot change? He cannot change in his perfections. He cannot change in his person. The third one begins with a W. And if you could think of a P, then it would be alliterated. God cannot change in his word. Psalm 119 verse 89, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withereth and the flower thereof fadeth, but the word of our Lord abideth forever. It cannot change. And Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. Not one jot or one tittle shall in any wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. He means my word cannot change uh, (coughs) even in the very corners of the letters. You can't even knock off a corner of a letter. Have you ever seen a very old newspaper and some of the print is a little bit illegible because over time, somehow some of the ink has come off? Jesus says God's word is so settled that looking at it after 6,000 years, you won't even notice the ink has even begun to fade. Men have despised the Bible, but here it is still translated into more languages than any published work in all of history. Stand up, Muslims. You claim to have two billion followers. Show me how many languages your book has been translated into. Oh, your book can't be translated or else it would be lost. Our book can be and must be translated and is going into all the world in 2,400 languages so that men can see and hear the word of God. In fact, Jesus promised it would happen in Matthew chapter 26. Therefore, this that this woman hath done will be spoken of wherever this gospel is preached. Wherever the gospel is preached, he gave a promise that his word would be preserved even down to the fact that it's a woman, not a man. And she brought uh, beautiful perfume and she broke it and poured it on his feet and again on his head, according to John. Amazing! Jesus promised, I'm going to preserve my word and I'm going to preserve it right down to the very details and it's going to go to the farthest reaches of the world. This is the wonder of God. His word cannot change. You don't have to question yourself when someone comes to you. A woman a number of years ago from one of our supporting churches in America emailed me and said, what can we do with the verse in Exodus chapter 21? My son read it and he's doubting the Bible because it speaks about slavery. And our answer to that is, in one sense, The Bible doesn't really care what your thought about it is. It's there. It's the rock. You can choose to kick your toe on it and break your toe in the process. Or you can bow down and say, please, rock, show me how strong you are. Please let me climb up upon you and stand upon you. Please let me have a little space to build my life upon you. You can do one or the other. You can kick at it and break your toe. Or you can build your house on it and let your children stay there. It is the rock that does not change. Men have hated God's incarnate word, not only the Bible, but they have hated his incarnate word. But he is still seated at the right hand of the Father. What verse is that in Hebrews? Still seated at the right hand of the Father? We just, what is it? 924, good job. The Quran was edited over the centuries, and even now it is controlled by the Hadith, which can be manipulated amazingly. The woman's headscarf that Muslims have to wear is in the Hadith, not the Quran. So that even though they have, they say, a revelation that cannot change, yes, but much of your religion is based on the Hadith that constantly change and can be voted upon by groups of you. Which is why some Muslims will wear it and some Muslims won't. And some Muslims will say, that's not a Muslim who does. And some Muslims will say, if you eat pork or this or that, 
Because ultimately that religion can change based on the Hadith, which are changeable words. You can vote on which ones you like and new ones can still be found and introduced. The science that the atheists and the secularists call their final authority changes from what to what? Don't say scientist to scientist. The science that the atheists and secularists hold as their final authority changes from what to what? From politician to politician. They don't trust in science. They trust in their politicians. Climate change isn't science. That is the fanatical fear that we will kill ourselves by driving buckies. That's not science at all. There's no science that says if the whole world drove buckies, we would all die. Perhaps the climate is changing to some degree or another, but the issue that we, us driving buckies, is going to change it, or you using air conditioning is going to make it get worse or better, that's insanity. That's political driving by the kings of the earth who say we despise God and we do not want his laws because he's been very clear to us. Second Peter chapter 3, the earth will be destroyed by fire from heaven, not from fire from earth. The word in, in any of its forms has not and cannot and will not change. It is an ocean of stillness which cannot be rippled. Frederick Faber put that in his wonderful poem and said, The trinity of the Godhead is like an ocean that does not move by any wind passing over it. And no rock is strong enough even to penetrate the water of that ocean such that it cannot have any ripples or waves from beginning to end except which ripples come from its own glorious inner depths. Numbers twenty three nineteen. God is not a man that he should lie. 1 Samuel 15, the glory of Israel will not lie or change. God in his wisdom cannot, has not, and will not change. There we have it. God's word, God's person, and God's perfections. Which one fits with which one of the members of the Trinity? Let me ask you this before we move on to our second point. How can we use the wonderful truth that God cannot change? How can we use it? Let me give you a simple way right now. Our hearts are always looking for something permanent. We are constantly moved by the speed of change. We are exhausted by change. Women have a certain kind of change that overwhelms them. Men have another kind of change that overwhelms them. But every man and every woman longs for something stable. That's why we buy Toyotas. We think they're more stable. We hope they're more stable. That's why people who love the iPhone love the iPhone. They hope it's gonna last longer. That's why we spend our money on our houses, that's why we act and we, we were always grasping out for a rock, for something movable, because everything in our world changes. Look at ESCOM. If you have the app for electricity, it can change three times a day. Stage six, downgraded stage two, ah, upgraded stage eight. Ah, in one day it changes. You see, we're constantly looking for that which does not change. We want the highest quality. We want the strongest service because we want something that really doesn't change. I've mentioned this before, but the title of this book is maybe better than the book itself. It's called The Fortunes of Permanence by Roger Kimball. And in that book, Roger Kimball argues that men are always looking for something permanent but amazingly, society has some impulse in it that tries to destroy what is permanent. So we're looking for permanence, and at the same time, we're destroying what we're looking for. We want families, but we destroy the family by our race after lust and easy divorce. We want art, but we destroy art by rushing after the foolish pop art that's all around us. We want comfort... And yet we destroy our comfort by glutting ourselves so that comforts don't even satisfy us anymore. That's Kimball's point. We really want permanence, which is why, can anyone think of a verse from Hebrews that teaches us about something permanent for which we should be grateful? Let us be grateful because the kingdom that cannot be shaken. What verse is that? Hebrews 12, 28. We should be full of joy because we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's the permanent thing. 
That's God himself. The human soul was designed to need a solid, enduring, unchangeable expectation. It was designed to need something permanent. And that's not Plato's world of the forms. That is heaven with God. And if you do not find that expectation in God, you will find depression and anger and anxiety. You will find a battalion attacking every social institution that could bring permanence. The immutability of God is a staggering glory that has enough strength and beauty in it to satisfy your soul all day, every day. And now I can move to my second point. The first point was what? God does not And I tried to show you three ways in which he does not change and then give you an application. Go look to his unchangeableness and just think of that when you get sick. Think of that when you lose your money. Think of that when you discover that your vehicle, your new vehicle that you just bought only gets five and a half kilometers to the liter of petrol and you are overwhelmed with discouragement. If that could happen to anyone here, I don't know. When those kinds of things happen, you just look to the immutability of God and lay hold of that by faith. But we have a difficulty. Our difficulty is that the Christmas holiday shakes our understanding of the wonderful doctrine of God's immutability. What do I mean? Because I mean this. Point number two. The Son changed from the eternal spirit into the eternal spirit joined to a created body. That is a change. Frederick Faber in his poem that I mentioned earlier says, oh, what nameless thing is this? A change in the unchangeable? How can that happen? Let's talk about this for a moment. He was the eternal son. Are we clear on that? There was never a time when the father did not have a son. Are we, all, are we all settled on that point? You could not find a day or a time or an hour or a minute. You could never go to a calendar and find the father without the son. And it's not the mother with the daughter. It's the father with the son. It's not the father with the daughter. And they're not interchangeable. It is the father with the son from all eternity past. You can't find a time. In fact, we know that, for, again, from the Old Testament. Proverbs 8, verses 24 to 31. Wisdom is speaking in Proverbs 8, verse 24. And it says, I was always with Jehovah. When he formed the mountains, when he made the stars, I was with Jehovah. And then it said, when he formed man, I rejoiced before him forever. This wisdom that is talking was a person because he can speak and he can rejoice. He can dwell and know Jehovah. What do you call something that can rejoice and know and dwell with? You call it a person. There was a person with Jehovah before anything was created. Proverbs 8 verses 24 to 31. And that person was with Jehovah. And in Proverbs 30 it says, What is his name? And what is his son's name? Tell me if you know, in the same book, Jehovah is speaking and says, okay, you tell me the name of the one who can make all these wonders. And then he says something that no one could ever have thought unless it was revealed. Tell me the name. We, well, well, well that's, that's God. That's the great spirit. And Zulu, that's in Kulunkulu. That's Mundimu. That's the great spirit beyond all spirits. What is his son's name? Son? Wait a minute. The great spirit has a son? We could not have known that unless the great spirit came down and told us he had a son. And this son, this great spirit did come down and he said there is a son. In fact, he is pure wisdom and he was rejoicing with Jehovah from all eternity past. But then... Wait a minute. There can be no but thens. It's, It's the glory of the father and the son and the spirit. Ah, but there is. That's the Christian message. The Christian message is that there was a father and there was a son and there was a spirit, but then. But then he changed. But then he joined to his divine glory a second nature. That second nature was human, earthly, physical, and created. That second nature was not in the beginning of time. Did you hear that? I'm choosing my words very carefully. That second nature was not. 
there was a time when the second nature of the sun was not. There was no time when the sun was not, but there was a time when the second nature was not. The era of the Arians back in the, in the 200s AD, late 200s, they were trying to say, well, there was a time when the sun was not. And then, then the father created the sun. And then later on there was a time when the father created the body for the son. No. In the council of Nicaea they said, that's heresy. There's never a time when the son was not. But there was a time when the body of the son was not. That's in our books. At the very end in the creeds. Why do we read that? Because if you don't lay hold of the true Christ of the Bible, you are laying hold of a false hope. You're holding on to grass and it's going to pull right out over the edge of that cliff. You're going to have to hold on to the trunk of Christ because he is the trunk. He is the vine and everything else is just dying grass. It's going to fade away. This one had a second nature. That was 2,000 years ago. That second nature was not at the time of Abraham and David and Jeremiah and Isaiah. That second nature was not when Socrates taught in Greece. That second nature was not when Confucius taught in China. But then it was. So there was a time when the second nature was not. But then there was a time when it was. This new body was not the divine nature. That's why the Council of Chalcedon, again, that's in our books at the back, 451 AD. They, they struggled, said, how can we do this? How can we take the teachings of the Bible and help ourselves, so help our churches and our people so that they will understand and know the truth of what the Bible teaches? Here are the words that they used. These words are not used in the Bible. These are our attempts to teach what the Bible says in a faithful and honest way to all the verses. So I'm going to give you now the words that the church has used for 1,600 years. Well, the first word I already gave you, person. There are three persons in the Godhead, but one God. There are two natures in, one, in Christ, but only one person. The word nature is not in the Bible, at least not used of God in the Bible. Men looked at the Bible and said, this is too great for us. This is too far beyond us. Either we've got to put our hands over our mouth and just worship God, or if we're ever going to preach about this God, we've got to have some word. So they decided, let's use the word natures. There's a human nature and a divine nature. The divine nature always was and was never created, but the human nature was born at Christmas and created nine and a half months earlier. The words that the Council of Chalcedon use, there are four of them that are very helpful. The Council says these natures are unconfused. That means they're not mixed together. There is a two-ness in Christ even until today. That two-ness is communicated with the word natures. So that he is a man and he is God. It's not a blurring. The manness and the godness were not put in a pot and stirred up like the Greek myths. That didn't happen. If you put them in a pot and stirred them up, there wouldn't be a two-ness, there would be a oneness. It's rather like this, putting oil and water in a pot. Do they mix? No. Christ is two and one, and we use the word nature to communicate that biblical idea. Christ is unchangeable. That's, again, the second word in the Council of Chalcedon. That means it cannot now be undone. You can't, even though they're not joined together, even, I'm sorry, even though they're not mixed, they're not confused in any way, they cannot now be separated. They're so tightly joined together, they cannot now be separated, which means Jesus has a body when? Today, 2022, 2,000 years after he was born. How can that be? Ah, you're going to be finding out how that can be for all eternity. And you're going to be writing songs about it and singing songs for all eternity about the goodness and glory of Christmas indivisible and inseparable. These are two more words in the Council of Chalcedon. Indivisible, you can't take it apart. Inseparable, you cannot look at one without the other. Christ cannot now be considered apart from his physical body. We use the word person 
to describe the oneness. We say there is one person in Christ, but how many natures? We use those words because the Bible teaches that Jesus was a man. Jesus wept, John eleven thirty five. 35. God doesn't weep. Oh, but Jesus does because he has eyes and ears. He has a face. He has tear ducts. He drinks water. Jesus can weep. He can get tired. And he can die on a cross. If he wasn't a man, he couldn't die for sinners. Ah, but he was a man who could die for sinners. Ah, there's the humanity. But he must be God. He must be God because he was rejoicing with the Father before the world. And he was with Jehovah when the kings of the earth attacked him. But more than that, Christ is the image of God. Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the exact representation of his nature. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world hath blinded the minds of those who do not believe the gospel, lest the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the image of God. I thought men were the image of God. Wait a minute, what does it mean to be the image of God? It means to have a spirit and a created body. Do you have a spirit? When will your spirit die? The soul never dies. It's going to live on forever in heaven or in hell. But you have a body and that body's going to die. Jesus is now the image of God because he is a bot. He was always the image of God, the exact representation of his person. But now in another glory, another glory of of Christ is, is revealed in that he has a physical created body and an uncreated divine spirit. And that spirit and that body are joined together. So in that sense, when we read in Genesis 1.26, let us create man in our own image after our likeness. After our likeness, let us create man in our image. There is the beginning of the doctrine of Christology for Christ is the image of God. How so? Because even from the beginning, Psalm chapter 40 says, the 40th Psalm says, I delight to come and to do your will. And then in Hebrews, when they quote that verse, Psalm 40 verse eight, in Hebrews eight, he quotes that exact verse. I'm sorry, in Hebrews 10, he quotes that exact verse and he says, I delight to come and do your will. And then the writer of Hebrews by the power of the spirit adds in words that were not in Psalm 40. And he says, a body you prepared for me before the world was formed. Before God ever formed the world, the son said to the father, I delight to do your will. And the father said to the son, I've prepared a body for you. And the son said, yes. And when the time is right, you will give me that body and I will delight to be joined to that body. One divine spirit in two natures. And I will be the image of God, thereby glorify. I I am. And then in the future will be in another way, the image of God and all created men will in another sense be little Christ's showing the glory of the image where the created body is joined to a soul that cannot and will not die. Christ is the image of God. If you believe that man was created as a soul and a body, then there is this satisfying completion when God himself matches that same creation. Alike, yet not alike. The same as Christ, but not the same. That's what we'll be saying for all eternity. We are like God, but know nothing like him. We've been made little Christ, but know nothing like him. That's what Peter means when he says we are partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature? Yes. Somehow drawing near to and made like Christ by faith, by faith in the Son and by the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a great mystery. It is perhaps the greatest of all mysteries. Infinity joined inseparably with something that was measured Infinity means that which cannot be measured. But now you've got Christ as a son who cannot be measured. You can't measure the beginning or the end of the son. For he created all things and by him all things consist. You can't measure that. But then you can measure his body. It starts at the bottom of his feet and it ends at the top of his head. Get your arms around that. You actually can. You can hug the son of God if his divine humility will allow you to do it. But you cannot put your arms around his infinite spirit. That is the greatest mystery. His uncreated divinity joined with creation. 
If we cannot explain, though, where a baby's soul comes from, why should we be bothered if we cannot explain this? It is a mystery. That's the point. If you could explain everything, what need would there be for heaven? Heaven is there so that we can go on learning and growing, never coming to an end of our growth, always discovering new connections between the divine nature of Christ and his human nature, always finding out new paths of love and wonder between the Spirit and the Father and the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the Son, always discovering this, never coming to an end of our happiness or our joy or our rejoicing. There will always be another and a better song to be written, and that is pictured at Christmas. Is that not a reason to have a Christmas party and a Christmas service and a Christmas sermon? We don't know how the soul leaves at death, how it travels and where it stays, then how in the world can we put words or understanding into this that the divine creator took his own creation as a part of his own person? This is a stumbling block for the liberals who pretend to be Christians but deny the Bible and cut it out. And they say in Isaiah seven fourteen, a young girl will have a child. No, it's a virgin. They don't like that because it's a miracle and they cut it out of their Bibles. But the Bible's still here, and the liberals are dead and dying, and all their churches are gone. It's not a young girl alone, but it was a young girl who had never known a man. It is a reason to have special meetings and special lectures. It is a light in the midst of clouds and darkness. It is a permanent testament of God's love for his people. Christmas services and parties and traditions are a danger to our souls. Listen. You heard me right. Christmas services, Christmas parties, Christmas sermons, Christmas traditions are a danger to our souls. If we don't see this mystery and adore it. If you have a Christmas time at your home, if you give out Christmas presents at your home and you miss this mystery, it is a danger to your soul. And for that reason, much of this town, much of this country, much of this world is in great danger. What kind of danger? They are endangering their souls and the murder of their own selves eternally because they are missing the mystery and taking the shadow and they're laughing and trying to get drunk on the shadow to hide their own ignorance of the real substance. But Christmas services and parties and traditions can be a great blessing if we use them to rejoice around this mystery. That's why we sing with our yellow sheet at Christmas times. That's why I want to encourage us to love Christmas because one month out of 12 is actually too small to think about this mystery. This mystery should be here in July. This mystery should be in our minds and our hearts in February and March and April. At our birthdays, let's have a Christmas service. We need to be thinking about Christmas commonly. If Christ had not changed from the divine and glorious son to the man of sorrows, we could not know God or be saved. All right, there's the second point. Did you follow that? Malachi 3, 6. God does not. But at Christmas, the Son of God. So now I want to bring the second point into the text. What is our text? Malachi 3, 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. Now the second point didn't come from the text. The second point came from Christmas, but now I'm going to bring it to the text. I'm going to ask ourselves, is there a contradiction between Malachi 3, 6 and Christmas? The answer is the incarnation reveals the immutability or unchangeableness of God. That's the third point, and I'd like to draw that to your attention right now. Malachi 3, 6 is actually perfectly and completely fulfilled in the incarnation. So that is the teaching that I mentioned from the second point of my sermon just now. What was the second point? Jesus changed at the incarnation. Everything I said there did not come from the words in Malachi 3, 6, but it came, listen to this, by implication. If you truly understand what it means that God did not change, then 
Everything I just said must come from Malachi 3.6. If God really doesn't change, think about it. Take that truth and run with that truth to the book of Genesis. Run with that truth to the book of Revelation. Run with that truth to Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Acts and Romans and 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Take that truth all the way through the Bible that God does not change and you will come up with this. The incarnation is the only way to consistently apply Genesis. I'm glad I just, I finally just got some eyes saying, how can that be so? That's the point of the third point in the message, which means I just explained my transition. My transition is there to try to get you interested. Here it is, and I close with this third point. Neither God's plan or his promises or his power changed at the incarnation but were rather fulfilled and could only have been fulfilled at the incarnation. Three things. Neither God's plan, that's what I mentioned from Psalm 40, before the foundation of the world, uh, behold, I delight to do your will. Uh, Behold, I come as it is written in the volume of the book. I delight to do your will, O God. That's the son speaking to the father before the world was formed. Psalm 40 is David writing by the Holy Spirit, explaining what happened before the world was formed. The son and the father spoke and the son agreed. You make the body for me and I will come and take that body. That was a discussion and a council and an agreement before the world was formed. And that agreement requires the immutability because the promise of God was made before the world was formed. If God never changes, then it will come to pass. Oh, but if God changes, then maybe that agreement they made where the son said, I will come and do your will. I will take the body that you've made. If they can change, then maybe they would change their promise. But their promise cannot change. And the plan cannot change. And the power that promised it cannot change. Even though it requires three things, the greatest invention, the greatest miracle, and the greatest condescension. Let me examine those three just briefly. All three of these are required. The greatest invention, the greatest miracle, and the greatest condescension. All three of those were required before the foundation of the earth. When the father said to the son, I've prepared a body for you. And the son said, I delight. Not just I'll do it, but I'm happy to do what you have arranged. You prepare the body for me and I will take it. Three points. That was all promised before the world and it cannot happen without the incarnation. So that the incarnation is the fulfillment and the logical implication of God's never changing attributes. The greatest invention. Who could ever conceive of this idea outside of the Bible? Well, they say, this came about in Greek mythology. Greek mythology is far later than the promises of Genesis 3.15. Greek mythology is far later than the book of Exodus, which promises a lamb. Greek mythology is later even than David, who wrote a thousand years before Christ. Psalm 40. No, 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 no. C.S. Lewis believes the Greeks borrowed from Christian revelation in order to come up with their myths. But since they didn't have full faith in the God of the Bible, they twisted it. That might be true. I don't know exactly how they came across it, but that may be true. But we know this. Long before the Greeks had their foolish, backward, twisted ideas of half God, half man, we have revelation from God. Hundreds, thousands of years before any man came up with their twisted, deluded ideas. For all we know, perhaps the Greeks did not read an old copy of the Bible. Perhaps demons put it into the minds of the Greeks to teach those rubbish ideas in order to throw disrepute on the Bible. For example, even today when you're evangelizing Muslims or liberals, they'll say, Ah, all of this, this Jesus took a body. (laughs) Come now, this is just Greek mythology. Just put it in the microwave and heat it up again. No, it's not. Perhaps the Greeks read the Bible but got it wrong because they weren't converted. Or perhaps demons put it into the mind of the Greeks to have those bad ideas. Either way, the Bible was there far before the Greeks. And any other cultures, myths, and traditions. This is the greatest invention. Who could have thought of it? 
Its existence proves that God wrote the Bible. For example, the, song, the, the, the name that we now give to Jesus, that people even name their children with. We have a song about it. O come, O come. What does that name mean? God with us. Is that not the incarnation? Is that not the fulfillment of Psalm 40, written 300 years before Isaiah wrote that prophecy? Is that not the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman? Oh, not the seed of God, the seed of the... Yeah, the incarnation was prophesied from the Garden of Eden. So don't bring your rubbish talks and ideas and thoughts that, oh, no, 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 this is coming from the Greeks. No. It's either the Greeks twisting the truth of God that he revealed... Or it's demons giving the wrong ideas. Number two, it is the greatest miracle. A miracle is a demonstration of power. What could be more powerful than this? Can you tell me what a spirit is? Tell me what it is. Well, it's like, it's like a soul. Okay, tell me what a soul is. Well, it's like a, a wind. Oh, really? So you can measure where it starts and where it stops. Well, you can't really measure where it starts and stops. Well, wind can be controlled by heat and fire and fans and electricity. Can you control souls by heat and fire and electricity? What exactly is a soul? We can't even explain what a soul is or where it comes from. How then could we explain an infinite soul? Whatever a soul is, his soul can't be measured. Whatever your soul is, it can be measured. It has a beginning and an end. But his soul is the Alpha and the Omega. It's the Aleph and the Tau. It's the beginning and the end. It starts before there is anything and it ends after everything is gone. How can you have infinite something that I can't even define bonded to a human body? It is a great miracle. Power may be seen. You can see power either by overwhelming demonstrations of strength. Have you ever seen earth movers coming in and they'll take a scoop and dig up some earth and then dump it in the back of a truck? Have you ever ever watched that? And maybe thought to yourself, how long would it take me if I had a shovel to do the same thing? I've thought that because we're doing all this work building the churches. Have you ever thought to yourself, how many people would it take to pull one of these lorries These double trailer lorries. How many people to walk with that? It's a lot of power, isn't it? Power can be measured by strength like that. Or one of these cranes that is building a new hospital. How much strength does it take? Power can also be measured by very, very small things. I had a problem with my watch some time ago. And I took it over here to a man that can fix watches. And he opened it up for me. I looked inside. And he put on special glasses and he took very special tools to try to move the little pieces around. And I asked him, could you build a watch from scratch? Oh no, oh no. You need a whole factory of tools just to build a modern watch. You need special lathes and spinners and special pieces to build all the little pieces that are going to go into that watch. What about a smartphone? What kind of power would you need to build a smartphone? My point is, there are so many ways to demonstrate power, either by the creation of small things that are seemingly to us infinitely complex, or to building great things that are overwhelming in their weight. But the incarnation has all of these. It is still going on today. We look at a cathedral, and we are amazed at how it lasts for 400 years one of these buildings of Europe that's gone on for 400 years and the blocks are so large. Jesus has gone on for 2,000 years and he is the true temple, John 2, verse 19. Finally, notice this, the greatest condescension. Condescension means coming down, making yourself low. You see, all of this was implied in God's immutability because God made a covenant. The father and the son spoke to each other. That's what people do, don't, right? People talk to each other. You know, one of the ways you know you're a person is that you can talk to people. You can talk to me and I can talk to you. And then, yeah, we, we take it for granted. We assume it works, right? 
Well, the Father and the Son are the real people. We're just copies of them. They were talking long before the world was, which is why Genesis 1 says, God said, let there be light. Long before the world began, the Father and the Son spoke, and they spoke about things that are far beyond us. We're just ants looking up amazed. And here the Father speaks to the Son about this great agreement to save man before men were. And the son said, not only will I come and take a body. What? A body? You don't understand that because you are a body and you've got a birthday. But here's one who had no birthday. And he knew he had no birthday. And he was preparing and planning to create the world and hold it all in the palm of his hand. Isaiah 40 verse 15. The whole creation is going to be just like so much dust in his hand. It's nothing to him to hold up the whole world. And he looks at that and says... I will take on a body and become the dust in my own hand. What is that but condescension and humility? And we do a great injustice to God himself when we do not take time to think about what that was. And the incarnation, which better known, popularly known as Christmas. At Christmas, we take a time to think about this. And if you say, well, the world has commercialized Christmas, then you fix it at your home and you fix it at your church. Don't make it commercialized at your church. Don't make it commercialized at your home. If you say, I can't do it in December, then do it in June. But take a month or two or three months to think about the wonderful time when the son agreed with the father to go very low. In music, dissonance is the distance between leaps. When notes leap upward or when notes fall downward. That's dissonance. And here is the greatest dissonance. One who is very high at the highest possible point and falling to the lowest possible point. Because as Ephesians said, he went right down to the grave. You will not leave, your, uh, you will not leave his soul in hell nor suffer your Holy One to see corruption. It was a downward leap. That leads, like music, to an upward leap. Because Philippians 2 verse 10. He has been exalted. And God has given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, that is the Lord. He was given the title Lord of all. At the name of Jesus, every knee would bow to that Lord. And every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord. It was a voluntary leap. He chose to go down. Satan attempted the leap. But in which direction did Satan try to leap? up and you're trying to leap up all the time you're always trying to say i'm bigger than i am and she's smaller than she is every impulse in our souls because of our fallen nature is always trying to leap ourselves up and push others down but this one leaped downward no one does that we all follow satan because we're the children of the father of lies and we try to leap upward and then the father pushed him down and said no you cannot leap upward and then Involuntarily, Satan was cast down to earth, and involuntarily, we will be thrown into hell, the farthest way down possible. But if we come in faith to Christ, he will take us in him, and the music will have the perfect ending. It will have the perfect ending when it blends together. Christ voluntarily leaped downward at Christmas. And he raised himself up, John 10, verse 17. No man takes my life from me. I take it, uh, I lay it down, and I will take it up again of myself. He did that by himself. His person did not change. That's the key. His person did not change. He was one person before the incarnation. He's one person afterward. He did not change in his essence. He is still displaying all the marks of the eternal king. Look at his life. What does he say? Go, Satan, Matthew chapter 4. When he's done with Satan, he just tells him to go. He's not an equal with Satan. He's not, as the Mormon church teaches, a brother with Satan. He tells Satan when to go. Look at his miracles. Lazarus, come forth. Who can talk to dead people and tell them to come out? Look at his teaching. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. How could you know that Peter's faith was about to fail? Because he's God and looks right into the soul of Peter and knows before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. He looked right into Peter's soul and showed it in his teaching. Look at his prayers. Father, glorify your son. Who can pray a prayer like that except a liar or a lunatic or the Lord? 
He had in all of his human nature, he had all the glories of divine eternality. And I say to you today, there is a perfect unity of never changing wisdom and saving grace in the divine God man. At Christmas, there is no change. It is the perfect fulfillment of Malachi 3.6. I am the Lord, I change not. And the Jews who first heard Malachi preach didn't understand that they were in the shadows. But we do see it because we're in the light. May God give us joy and hope and faith in it. Father, save us from our sins. Oh, Spirit of God, come and give us joy in this wonderful truth. Help us to love the never-changing nature of God. Oh, save some sinner today. My children, those who listen to this on recording or others around, or even those that we speak to about this doctrine, let us be soul winners today, Lord Jesus, bringing others to see the wonder of who you are. Grant your blessing in the afternoon as we go out to the villages. In Jesus' name, amen.